Hi, welcome to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Today's guest is Andrew Delantonio, a music historian and deep thinker about management and access for all. We chat about how institutions can change, how to open up education, and how a sense of purpose helps to keep you centered and how to reconnect with yourself. And that Andrew's optimism is well justified, a great message to his younger self. So Andrew, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm at the time of of the year slash semester where the adrenaline of teaching um, Mm -hmm. has kind of faded a little bit. Um, And I'm still in the thing of what, oh, yeah, I still need to, you know, do final assessments of things. And uh, and so the class isn't over yet. But but the, you know, the regular getting there and sort of create building on the energy of the students and my own, you know, lively HDHD energy um, isn't part of my weekly routine yet. And so it's like, what the heck am I supposed to be doing now with my life? And on top of that, (laughs) um, given that half of normally half of my time is admin time right now we're in the middle of a transition where one of my right hand folks there so i'm i'm i coordinate undergraduate stuff in our college of fine arts here at ut and so this means that there are three teams one that sort of does admissions recruitment one that does current student services one that does career service stuff each headed by a director or or somebody with a similar title and each of those three teams does their work i you know, not only oversee them, take credit for them, blame them for the wrong things. <laughs> I, I, I try to be, I try to be a humane middle manager, or whatever. But, but anyway, so that's a big piece of my job, and, and then I do a bunch of other things that have to do with, with curriculum and so forth. But and still, it's complicated when people are looking back and forth, saying, "Well, wait, why is this group getting resources, and why am I not being effective in getting my group the resources that I want?" And here, being at a state university, all salaries are published online, and so a culture can become established of, oh, well, why is this person getting more, which is a legitimate equity question and also a complicated question of, well, what are all the considerations that are happening upstairs? And I'm in a sort of advisory position in all this. I help mm-hmm. advocate everybody, but I don't have oversight over a, over a large budget. I mean, I help, you know, smaller budgets. So I get to advise on salaries and such, but I don't get to make the decision. Mm-hmm. And so it's a sort of weird place. Anyway, so all That's this That's what you're up to. <laughs> But the question now is, okay, so what's next, right? And so I'm beginning to realize, and this is interesting for me in my own role too, and kind of connects to the work-life balance thing, that when somebody's in a position for a very long time, the position becomes them and they become the position. And their team becomes kind of disoriented at the notion of that person leaving that role Mm -hmm. because what could ever possibly happen? Who will take care of us, right? Mm -hmm. The next is gone. And so... I've been trying to bring forward a scenario, and I think we got a good one, where people who have actually been working are going to be taking roles of greater responsibility. So we're not going to be replacing that role per se. We're going to be reconfiguring a bunch of roles where people who have been working can move up Mm. authority. And I think actually that will be more sustainable in the long run uh, because these are younger folk who I hope will only be around for a couple of years and then we'll move on. And Mm -hmm. I think part of the issue I'm starting to realize, and it's funny for me to say, because I've been teaching here for 20, almost 21 and a half years. Okay. So, so it's right. Right. So, so I've been here heckin' long, <laughs> but I mean, but, but what has happened is that there have been a few times when other places either have come calling or have come calling to them and I've had the chance to envision and even to get offered elsewhere and to, you know, to realize no is better to stay. But of course it's part of that 
as happens everywhere, but also in academia, most of all, that's where the raises come. They come when a different place values you more oh. and a place has to say, okay, we have to match, mm. right? Because otherwise, generally speaking, in academic contexts, people are trying, particularly state universities, people are trying to stay as much as they can. And so they're not going to make a big effort of giving you preemptive rates, which is unfortunate because you get all sorts of weird compression, right? But people who've been here a long time get paid less than new people, right? Oh. And so there you go, right? So, but anyway, so all this to say that I think it's good to move into a model where people are here for a while, but then feel like they can keep moving. Mm. So on the one hand, I don't want to force anybody out because I know that you know, I, I mean, I'm lucky I got tenure. I can't kick me out unless I start harassing a lot of people. And, and, and so, so it's easy for me to say it's important to have mobility, right? Mm-hmm. But even in my, I mean, right now I've been in this role, again, administrative role for almost eight years. And I know that I need to leave soon, partly for, because I'm starting to become associated with the role. Uh, and if I don't leave soon, then people aren't really going to know how to move beyond that. So for my sake, in the sense of I, things are starting to feel routine and the way my brain works is like a, I don't feel like I can bring as much interesting and new to the position that I used to. Mm. And, you know, and I've still been teaching, but I've only been teaching half time and, and I'd be happy to go back teaching full time until who knows, right? I mean, there was a time when I thought, okay, this is the first step towards an administrative path and it's could still happen. I could want to be a dean someplace, but but I'm also seeing what my boss is doing and what he has to do, and I'm thinking, yeah, no, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't. I mean, the, the, the managing those things. There are some aspects of helping things happen that are nice, right? And other aspects that, right? So, being able to make it clear to those whom I have to convince about salaries, right? Mm. When people that the reconfiguration need to be a certain kind of reconfigurations to honor the expertise mm. and to honor the value of the new role, uh, right? While they're, of course, you know, they would love to save as much as possible uh, because that's their job. Their job is, well, excellent. This person is retiring. All this money is coming back for mm. their role. Let's repurpose as much as we can because, damn it, we're just hemorrhaging in all sorts of directions, right? Yeah. And to say, yeah, hold on, right? Uh, maybe some of it, but if we repurpose it too much and we're not giving enough to the people who will be moving into, new, into these new roles, then A, they might not do it and then we're totally screwed yeah. because trying to fix that would cost a lot more money. Trying to make something from the outside, a lot, lot, lot more money. But B, you know, even if they do take the position and they feel like they've been shafted, right? right? Then that, that's not the kind of, I mean, first of all, it's not ethical. So God forbid you should care it's not ethical. But but just from the pragmatic perspective, it's like, like there, there's no way that, that these kinds of really essential roles, that, that these functions are determined by the university, right? So there's some things at the university in our college that we can decide what to do. But the registrar says, you got to, you know, you got to give us a student information by this date if they want to graduate. Of course, yeah. And these are the teams that are doing that. And so there's only so much that you can trim uh, in a team that's actually doing the things that without which the university doesn't exist. Right? right. And but it's also the kind of stuff that's often kind of invisible because it's not very fancy, it's not very new. It's just the bureaucracy that's gotta happen. It's 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 the electrical grid, right? Right. Right. And, and so how it's do you, a utility. Exactly. And, and so how do you get people to value the utility if the utility's role is not be visible? Mm. Right? So like you know, the taxes thing, right? You know, how do we get people to pay for taxes for roads 
when people just drive driving the freaking routes. <laughs> the unsexy <laughs> stuff, yeah. So, so anyways, so you ask how am I doing? I'm, I'm in the middle of trying to facilitate a transition that has a lot of wonderful promise and I think, knock on wood, will work out. But we're still in the te- moment of tension of are these people going to be offered what they need to embrace the new positions enough to move forward? And and then, frankly, I mean, what I hope is that they embrace them, they build their expertise, and then they move on a couple, three years so the people who are working for them can move into those positions. Right. Because, you know, you, you want to have, you know, we have a number of sort of low, mid-level advising positions, which could be for some of our advisors are kind of the place where somebody goes and ends. We've had some of our advisors working with their students for 15, 20 years, which is wonderful because they really know their job, but also for compression, solid compression issues and all sorts of other reasons, they start feeling trapped. Right. And whenever starts feeling trapped, I mean, I don't need to tell you this, right? Yeah. That's, that's when, when it becomes difficult for them to operate and, and all sorts of understandable resentments come into place about, well, wait a second, so-and-so got hired three years ago and they're making yeah. 10 grand more than I'm making. What the hell is that? Yeah, the about? resentment piece. That's a, that's so interesting because there's a phenomenon that I've always ta- referred to as shiny, happy, new, which is when um, a management team thinks that the familiar is bad and that this new person will always be the sa- savior. And so everything either piles on that new person or the people that are there are sort of treated like garbage. But there's a second half to this that you were talking about, which is that shiny, happy, new can often be shiny, happy and new as long as like everyone is moving in some kind of direction. As long as, long as the culture is a culture of movement. right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always going to have people choose to stick around and and not everybody. I mean, we're, we're in capitalism, right? I mean, unfortunately, you know, uh, n- not everybody's going to always have the opportunity because of privilege and all the other things. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, but. but the the idea that if you come and join this team, there is a tr- some of it may be internal, some of it may be external, but there's not a sense of you get this and that's where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that and and and, and, and you know where I, what I don't quite again. I mean, I'm just a music history person, and I've, I've kind of kind of learned to kind of be a manager the last eight years, and it's been a really interesting journey, right? Because I never trained to be a manager, and I don't know how the hell one does that. I didn't get my MBA, right? <laughs> Um, but, so what was great, I mean, I've had really great, um, employee teachers, right? Uh-huh. So that to really fantastic was, uh, again, happenstance, right? So I got this position partly because there was actually an external offer. You know, I looked at a possible alternative place to, to be, they'd given a fairly substantial opportunity and the person who is my boss, the dean, but sort of the boss of our college, he and I actually, even before that, I've been talking about the need for greater cross-curricular mm-hmm. engagement in our college because it's a very siloed place, right? We have our school music. We have the theater people. We have the visual arts people. And never they shall meet. They're in different buildings and right. they don't talk, right? So I'd already, even just because that, that's something I care about, I'd already been doing some stuff, putting together a faculty group and so forth to talk about stuff like that. And the dean basically said, okay, what if, you know, if you were to stick around, what if we were to reclassify half of your position to this, Trying to change more oh. and give the opportunity to really think more systematically about what is this not just in terms of faculty communication and curriculum, which is a big piece of my job, but also how we serve students in a more systematic way. How do we create more equitable admissions policies? Right? How, how do we try to make it not just a white school? Which is kind of, I mean, I'm not saying it's, that's only we have, but we've gotten better at that, but that's kind of where yeah, well, it's years a starting ago. point. Yeah. Um, and, and and how how do we? I mean, you know, you know this too. I mean, in particular art schools, 
you know, when we try to get students to come here and do their undergrad here, the parents say, so what are you going to do with that? Right. 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 Which is a legitimate question also because, and I I know music better in other areas, but so many of our music faculty, we're all like, oh, you're going to become first chair violinist. And like, like, no, no, that's a lie. Um, I I mean, it's an aspirational goal, but pragmatically, I mean, we're a good program, but, but no, I mean, maybe one out of a hundred of our students have that kind of a career as a full-time career and it's and it's dishonest to to you know la 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 like like it's going to happen for everybody and at the same time how do you do that without you know stomping on the faculty and saying you shut up you don't tell people that they're going to be successful as musicians because how the hell are you going to get them in the first place right so 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 how do you build co-curricular opportunities for example we very recently actually i guess four years ago now god very recently i'm getting old um (laughs) started a a a minor in arts management oh cool that sort of is is uh, in conjunction with a couple courses in the B school, a couple courses that we've created. That basically is okay. You're doing a major in music or whatever, but you can also learn about how. I mean, a variety of resources, either just taking a course or two, or actually getting a whole minor, so that when you leave, you have a credential that you can take into nonprofit. Yeah. Right. And so it gives and you skills. You know, as as right as a musician, knowing how to do it, or as an artist, knowing how to do it is good. At, anyway yeah. and it gives you more pathways right for just to, to a satisfying professional career so that's sort of the, that's the most you know structured piece of it all but there are a bunch of other you know workshops and stuff like that you know we're trying to wrap our heads around what entrepreneurship means in the arts and stuff like that so i mean the, you know without being too too hell on liberal about it i mean in a sense that's you know that's what we are neoliberal university and so we need to to help students navigate that space so so that's i mean that's something that I was cognizant being important. The dean thought it was important. So between the two of us who said, we got to make this happen. We managed to, you know, squeeze the blood out of the turnips, get an entirely, uh, a chunk of budget to hire an entirely new position. Um, a woman who's actually brilliant, got a doctorate in educational administration. She joined us two and a half years ago and she basically is helping to build this new minor and also other things. So, so great. So that's, that was one piece. But the first thing that, uh, that uh, we decided to do is we need to have a college wide thought process on admissions overall. So each of the areas in the college have been doing their own admissions in a way that have been extremely, I mean, catch as catch can. And some departments were all come department, uh, art, uh, visual art for a long time was a, hey, do you have a pulse? Okay, come and study. <laughs> which, is, which I think is wonderful, but it also led to to vast numbers and sort of grumbling on all sides about uh, differential qualification, differential ability, and people, you know, getting getting one of our BFAs in, in visual art, having a vast spectrum of actual competencies, right? And so the faculty at one point decided, okay, we need to actually audition a portfolio. We need to have people who wanted to study studio art present a portfolio of something, right? Yeah. That, and we, part of the admissions process is based on what have you done already and what's your potential and the tricky thing there of course is then that excludes people who haven't had a lot of a lot right. of training and and so i think at that moment this was actually before i took on my role when they started narrowing down the people who got in the department became more white mm-hmm. and so they needed to sort of take a step back and say okay yeah i get that you want to create some sort of expectation about about competencies coming in, but not everybody has those opportunities. And so how do we open up that definition? So anyway, so we decided we need to have a, a director of recruitment and admissions for the college. We need to have somebody at the college level answering to the leadership team and then with team members in each of the areas, but somebody where we in the college can talk to the chairs and say, okay, here are some guidelines on what your yield has been over time. Here is your yield 
of women, here's a yield of people of color. We need that to change. We're not going to give you, you know, direct quotas because we're in Texas and God forbid, but let's hire a director of admissions. Well, you know, what did I know? I mean, I was just hired. At this <laughs> And, and the dean says, let's create a position for director of admissions and let's hire somebody. Well, fortunately, I had you know good people helping me define it. But then the woman we hired was freaking brilliant. She had just finished uh, an MBA, but had also been a second in command in, in admissions at um, Southern Methodist. And she basically came in and created a system for us. And and I don't know what you would have done if you hadn't done that. But what's cool about that for me as a, as a manager was that she knew about management and she kind of helped me learn you know, she coached me to be her manager, mm. right? Very explicit about it, you know, and because she wanted to have a manager who was helpful. So, right. okay. And I was pliant because I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I <laughs> was willing to admit it. Uh, and so I learned a lot of things about, you know, it, not super systematically, but I learned a lot about th- things from her about what works, what doesn't work. And, and even some doesn't work from her because she was brilliant and also was very, had very strong opinions. And that was a little bit hard sometimes to negotiate with highly opinionated chairs of departments, right? Because they're faculty and they're the bosses and they're male and so God, right? And and so, you know, there were, I won't say shouting matches, but things approaching those, mm-hmm. right? And, and so for me to figure out, you know, me being the let's kumbaya everybody, figuring out <laughs> how, how, you know, how, how do I, you know, Felicia, my wife started referring to my job as hostage negotiation because people bring me in when, when there are tensions and the tensions need to be smoothed out. And it is a strength of mine. It's also my kryptonite because I can't stand it when people don't get along, which is why I work real hard to make it fix. But also, but I'm also, I don't think it has much distance. That's something I've been working on is how do you, how do you realize you can't please everybody, right? Mm. Yeah, because I've talked about that all the time. But so that's been a piece. And the other piece has been now this realization. So again, the, the, the life balance thing. Yeah. The realization that when conversely, so this woman who ran our admissions, college admissions team for three and a half years, then got hired by Google for twice the salary. So it it wasn't super easy to retain her at that point, right? I mean, she was done and that was fine. And she has assistant for us. And the new person who's in place has less experience, but he has a lot of other phenomenal skills. He's an African-American man. And so that also is helping us really think systematically about what schools we go into that don't have the fancy art programs, Mm -hmm. but have to help us be less, you know, going for the the most privileged people in the state, right? right? Uh, and, and so it's been important for him to be in that role. And so he, I've been learning a lot from him about how do you think about inclusion, right? Not just the D word, the diversity word, but how do you think systematically about that? Right. right? So that's a big learning curve for me as well. But with, with this, um, so the person who's been here longer than I have, over time, I started realizing the dangers of dedicating yourself so deeply to your job and to what you see as the people whom you serve, ah. that that you don't protect yourself from feeling looked over and passed over. Hmm. Um, anyway, long, long story short, I'm letting folks know that I want their roles to be a lot more visible. Mm. Uh, I want the people above me to be always cognizant of the essential nature of what's happening, even if they don't know the details. Yeah. Because that's also legitimate, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what you're paid for is to take care of stuff so that person above you doesn't have to deal with it, right? So, okay. But but if you if you become invisible to the people, people if above you're you- you're so good that they don't even, yeah, you can make it look too easy. You can make it look too easy and, and, and they cannot realize how much effort is being made and therefore that you might look like you don't need additional resources, right? right? 
And you right. might say you do, but it doesn't look like you do, so maybe you don't. And and part of that, frankly, is up to the people upstairs, right? So that's not to excuse them, but but it's sort of it's sort of one of these enabling things. So okay, I mean, my role, frankly, I mean, I joke about being middle management, not doing anything. I mean, it's true that day to day, you know, my role is not as you know boots in the trenches as some of the people who the people who report to me. I do a fair amount of stuff. I manage a fair amount of stuff. I expend a fair amount of sort of political energy making things work, mm. right? And so somebody is needed in a role that's similar to mine, and I'm clear on that. But what's becoming clear to me is that I need to not be indispensable. I mean, it's nice for me to think I'm indispensable. Right. Again, conversation I have with my therapist. Uh, <laughs> so that people need me. Of course people need me. Of course I have to do this because no one else can do this. But this is a nice opportunity for me to see, well, here's the peril. Yeah. Right. Here's the arrow of being somebody who is so essential right. that those around you, first of all, don't realize the extent of the work that you're doing because you're absorbing it so much. But also, secondly, they can't think of your job as a role. Right. They think your job is you. Like you are right. the job. Right. right. That is such a danger. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, mean, I have this conversation also with Felicia and my wife and about, you know, I, I've thrown a lot into disability advocacy and I, you know, I do a fair amount of graduate student advising, a certain amount of mentoring of people who are out in the world in a variety of respects, you know, a lot of junior scholars, because I feel I got privilege, I got to give back privilege. Right? So that's, that's legit. And that's a piece. But the other piece, there's, there's a piece of, I can help someone and it's on me to help that person. Right, right. And that's nice until it becomes I'm the only one who can help that person. Mm. And then that's where the peril shifts into not just dangerous ego, but then you can't let go of anything. Right. And, and that's so, you know, one more balance into work life balance. One of the things that I'm still grappling with is what's a line between the satisfaction, which is absolutely satisfaction, of paying it forward. Yeah. Right. I know I've been helped a lot in my trajectory. And so, I feel, first of all, ethically obliged, but also it's it's a satisfying feeling to feel like I can contribute the same way I feel people contributed to me. Yeah. Right. So that's so that's really satisfying. But it's also a fair amount of emotional energy to to do that thing because even things that are really wonderful require emotional energy. I mean, I don't need yeah. to tell you, right? Yeah. And and so I mean, this is the kind of thing that is often coded a bit more female than the male, whatever, but it is the nurturing thing, right? Nurturing takes energy even though it's incredibly wonderful, right? Mm. It's kind of like and so I, I feel like a lot of the work I do is so this kind of boosting and nurturing to see people rise. That That is such a joy to me. And yet if I do so much of it that I am scrambling and feeling like like I'm pulling in 50 different directions mm. out of a sense of obligation because nobody else could do it. Right. Which breeds resentment and things like that a little bit. Right. right. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't think, thankfully, I haven't yet gotten to the resentment. Yeah, but part. it's, you know, but, it but leaves right. you in danger of it. It leaves you vulnerable to it. Exactly. And it, it breeds burnout. For sure. Breeds burnout. Yeah, well, so that gets very interesting in your stuff about the roles. Um, that clarity of role piece is really, really interesting because it comes down to a lot of stuff I've been researching and studying this year about, well, some of it, I don't know if you've ever read any Simon Sinek or listened to him. He has a whole thing about leadership being management is to serve those who serve others. Hmm. That that's that hmm. that's what that okay. is. Yeah, okay. yeah, and that it's. Yeah. A, okay. Cheers. Yeah, right. cheers. Um, and I think you said what's that? Cynic. Cynic. I know, which is funny because it sounds like he's cynical, but it's S I N E K. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and then there's another guy that I did some reading of named Robert Fuller, and he did some stuff about ten years ago on something that he called dignitarianism, um, hmm. which is the dignitarian workplace versus rankism, which is 
Mm. a lot of what kind of ends up in workplaces. But what he pointed out was the more you can have it be the system, the more you can have the role be clear about what the role gives, then anybody can be in that role instead of saying, well, this one person was super generous in this role and the next person wasn't like is there is is there ways to step back away from the people and start saying no the role demands a certain generosity level that we expect from the next person who is in this role it's really interesting and it was a way of what i liked about it was that it takes away that tendency to say about somebody because they're a different person there that they're a problem you know, or, well, it's not how we used to do it. That's always going to happen. But if the role is very clear, yeah. that yeah. lessens a bit, I feel like. Yeah. It, it, it lets the structure take on some of that stress yeah. instead of every individual person going, well, I mean, I'm doing everything I can or I'm doing the bare minimum. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, and I suppose, again, in administrative structure, too, and there's something, again, learning to be a manager of grapple with this is evaluation, right? How yeah. – and, 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 and the, the clear, of course, this interestingly enough made me use more rubrics in my teaching is the clearer it is what it is that I'm expecting. And you know that yes. then the more legitimate it is for me to say, well, OK, you've done this and done this and, and you didn't do this thing. You know, and so what are we going to do about that? And it becomes less about, oh, my God, you failed and more about there's this piece that we still need to accomplish. Right. Yeah. You can point to it. And it's, again, more about the role having been fulfilled and the person having slacked off. Yeah. Then it, it makes it easier for the person hopefully to understand what the manager expects of them, which I think students will often say is, well, I wasn't quite sure what I was supposed to do with this or what the expectation was, which is a legitimate concern for a managee as well. Is that a word? Uh, what, <laughs> it is what, now. <laughs> right, I don't know. Subordinate, I think. But. <laughs> Subordinate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a great, great concept. Yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate this because, I mean, it's, what's interesting again is, is that as I've been contemplating, you know, the time I spent in this role. And I've grown a lot in it, both in terms of, and it's interesting, it's hard for me to know what piece has fallen into place because of what, because mm. my time in this role has also coincided with my increasing understanding of issues of disability and equity and, you know, issues of racial equity as well. Thanks to one of my colleagues in our college recently invited uh, this group and you may well have heard of them because they're actually pretty involved across the country. They're called a, the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond. Have you heard this? No, name? that's a great name. <laughs> a great name. So they're called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, and they're based, they're based in New Orleans, but, but they have folks all around the country. And basically their core offering, let's call it that, are a set of workshops they call Undoing Racism. Uh, oh. And they have a bunch of folks who are trained to facilitate the workshops and what they and, and they bring them um, to institutions they offer them to institutions and what, what they say about them is that these are workshops that are not the kind of we're going to come in and solve your diversity problems right in fact they say we're going to make problems for you uh, because we want to come in and help you build a language to use and a set of premises to use from which you can then turn inwards and investigate what racism means in your institution. Wow. And and it's super freaking powerful. Wow. And th th they're not cheap, nor should they be. I mean, they again, it's another, I was actually talking to one of these prospective employees and talking to her about, you need to know your value, right? It's so hard for folks to be able to articulate their value, particularly if they're women and people of color, right? Because, mm. you know, they have 
necessarily been trained to do that. Um, and because they can come across as complaining and shrill, they're asking for too much and all that. I mean, I, I don't need to tell you this, right? <laughs> no, uh, no, I'm just nodding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they've said that the, the, the cost of the workshop has a substantial amount because they want to emphasize that sending two or three trainers for, and, and so what, what these, their initial training workshop is, is a two day, nine to five thing. And basically they say it's a maximum of, I think, 40 people from your organization per training workshop. They send two or three trainers in and they, they hunker down with your team for two whole days in a row through which they take you through a very systematic path. What's interesting for me is that I was actually able to sit on two of these because we brought them in for two trainings for two pieces of our organization back in May. And then we were pretty sure we were going to bring them in for more until we brought them in for two more in August. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we had decided in this group that I'm in, which is our you know diversity committee, but hopefully we're trying to mess with the word. But anyway, this, this committee we have in our college that's trying to talk about inclusion issues and we were the ones who proposed bringing these folks in. We managed to find the resources to do that. And we said we need to have one of us at each of these so that we can mm. have a sense of what's happening and, and how do we maintain continuity because these folks come in 48 hours and they're gone. Right. And, and if we just let that be the thing, then then it's completely beside the point. The yeah, point it also is, doesn't seep into the organization if you just have one level doing it. You're like, well, you guys have to learn this and nobody else does. Exactly right. And because the whole point is what they're doing is they're peeling back a layer and they're saying, hey, guess what? Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, and, and again, I, I don't want to get too much into it because they're very keen to say the process is really what they're what they're bringing. Uh, right. And so you know, I can give you a couple of sort of pointers about it. But but, you know, you'd have to you'd have to be there. You have to be there. I, have, I have to kill you. Right. No, no, I mean, if some of this is taken out of context, then sure. people struggle with it would really have a problem with it. But basically, you know, the trajectory of the two days is actually very similar, although they tailor it to each group. So it's interesting for me to see them work two different groups, first one group, and then the other group with a slightly different composition of people, different mix of people of color and not. But the main trajectory is the first day is really all about systems of injustice. Mm. And the issue of racism doesn't even surface fully until towards the end of the first day. Because it's primarily about system economic injustice, systems of structural injustice, ways of thinking right. that condition us into thinking the way we do. Right. right. And it moves into, okay, let's think about a particular area of town where people who who we characterize as whatever, you know, call it the ghetto, the barrio, what does this look like? What what do we see? And then what are the systems that underpin this based on how they are defining, which understandably racism, as a system of injustice and power? Mm-hmm. Those who benefit from the system are inherently the people who, who are not oppressed by it structurally. Right. 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 And so they send you home overnight to kind of stew on it. And then the next morning they say, okay, what do you think? How are you guys processing this right. particular? And, and so that brings out a lot of stuff. And then the rest of the, the second day is, okay, let's unpack this, right? Let's figure out where do we go from here? Not here's a bullet list of solutions, but if we're going to, embrace at least provisionally the premise this is true then what what are what do you the do com- about it yeah. exactly but but how do we sit with this mm. how do we sit with the discomfort and the reality of a system that has been built over a couple of centuries that cannot be dismantled in a heartbeat but that if we believe it needs to be dismantled needs to be dismantled so how do you do that and what are the different roles that people with different systems of power can do it. So one of the things that they then focus on is the idea of gatekeeping, right? That in every system, there's a gatekeeper who makes access possible or impossible. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a gatekeeper. 
everybody's a gatekeeper. And so how can you be a gatekeeper who is accountable right. to those who have been marginalized, however you define that? So, of course, they're focusing on race and they're, every time they're saying we're focusing on race because we believe it's it's pressing and crucial. But, of course, you can plug in lots of other right. parameters. Right. Well, well, yeah. Yeah. And right. that actually is a really good segue to your community work. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you're yeah. a disability advocate. Right. So Strong right. So, I mean, I, I and, and, and this is, you know, and so this connects then with this question of how can you be an advocate activist when you are not of the people, right? So how do I, with the privilege I have, I mean, again, as I think I mentioned to you at some point or as I occasionally post about, right, only a couple of years ago, I was, as I was officially diagnosed ADHD, right? So technically, I have a diagnosis, but mostly I'm not disabled in a structural sense, right? So, so in, in the social model, it's that I'm, I'm in a position where what my difference is does not get in the way of me functioning in society and having the privilege of being, you know, of having opportunities. Right. Right. So, so, so on the one hand, yes, there are difficulties that come out of it and there are things I need to negotiate. But at this point in my life, if I'd been diagnosed when I was a kid, that might've been different. But mm. at this point, in my life, it doesn't change things that much. And so can I really identify as disabled? Well, it's, I mean, I don't know, right. In some parameters, not really mm-hmm. in others. I do, in fact, understand the idea of cognitive difficulty and inability to, to engage with things. I mean, I look back to high school and college and, uh, I mean, uh, you know, it didn't manifest as strongly as it does in some, but I look back and I say, aha, uh-huh, is that why, right? Mm-hmm. Is that to be a student in college? I mean, it kind of is because distractibility was a thing. And I thought, oh, I'm not working hard enough back then. But but that wasn't, it wasn't that simple, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and, so, and it didn't prevent me from getting where I am, so I'm not going to complain about it that much, but it is a reality. And so I can look at my students and say, okay, the reason why you're slacking off is not because you're, you're being a jerk to me. Mm-hmm. It's because cognitively your your load is such that you can't manage it, right? And and most of the time that is the case. I mean, not that nobody ever slacks off, but, but most of the time that's the reason. And so it's not their fault. It's my responsibility. So part of it has been, so the, the place where that's been really important for me to move into the last couple of years, you know, as I tried to figure out, you know, I have two disabled kids. I have friends who are disabled. I see the lives that they're having and I want to, to break down those injustices, to create spaces for greater justice in that right. respect. Right? Right. And more generally, the topic of disability within my field is something I'm very interested in. I've gotten involved with various study groups in music and disability. And so I teach that within uh, as a topic. The field being I, music, not administration necessarily. Music. Yeah. No, it, yep. Administration is, interestingly enough, administration is, is now sort of an incidental thing. Mm. Uh, I still see myself as a music history person. I, mm. I see myself as a historian, right? Historian who works in music, who teaches in music, in music places. That's mostly what I see as my profession, even though, interestingly enough, half of my life has been managing. Okay, right? but, yeah, yeah. But it, oddly, that, that I fell into it. it right, I, I guess. Although, yeah, my vocation is music and, and, and my, um, where I still feel most knowledgeable. Yeah. Right? Okay. I, I mean, I'm a beginner, intermediate manager. Yeah. But my professional strength is in, is in music and history. Yeah. Well, not, um, to, not to derail you, just wanted to clarify, uh, yeah. That, that's legit. So, so music is a place. So I've been trying to think all along, where is the legitimate place where my wish to be part of this conversation can take place in a way where I'm not barging in as an abled person in the dialogue to disabled people? I mean, there's something that in a smaller way I encountered when I first got here as a baby assistant professor. I was the only person in our faculty who cared anything about gender. 
And so here was a straight white male being the gender person, gender studies person in our music area and being affiliated with women gender studies and, and sort of being the person who taught that, but also not wanting to feel like here is another guy colonizing, right? Because yeah. a lot of people doing feminist work have legitimately said, here come the guys again, yeah. right? It's going to be about them again, right? Let me and tell so, you ladies how, how we should have more ladies here. <laughs> right? right? And, 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 and so, so fortunate for me, I'd been schooled enough in that that I was cautious about treading in, uh-huh. right? So I haven't been quite sure of how to get into that conversation. I mean, you know, I post stuff on Facebook, right? You've seen me do that. I contribute to to disability groups. I, you know, I jump down and, and taller, but but I can't speak for disabled right. folks. Right, you need an ally, that, but not a spokesman. Yeah, right. Where I sort of I'm starting to find a place now. In the last couple of years, has been in this concept of universal design for learning, a particular sort of approaches to teaching that are about designing teaching structures uh-huh. so they are accessible. Right. Mm-hmm. So that so that it's not like, oh, well, you have this disability, so we're going to make this exception for you in the course structure. Right. So, you know, you come to me, this is a standard model. You know, you have this letter from the Center of Disabilities that says you get time and a half on tests right. or you get somebody taking notes for you, whatever. And that's still in place. And that is what that is. But that puts the onus on you, the person who is marginalized, to convince somebody that you deserve to have what you need. Yeah. Right. And, and Legally, you're supposed to have it. But what's still interesting is we still have – I still have colleagues who look at somebody and say, well, you look fine to me. Yeah. And you can imagine the level of sort of what the fuck that that, that, that the student has to hit at that point, yeah. right? Yeah. How, how do I convince you that I need what I need if I don't look – if I look fine, yeah. right? That's getting better, but that's still structurally a problem when you have a system that is – the system that it is, and then somebody has to come in and get exceptions to the system. Right, right. right. So w- what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build into my course design various opportunities to acquire information to demonstrate knowledge so that some of the people at least who might otherwise come to me and say, hey, I need time and a half, don't need time and a half because we don't have any tests. And right. so that's need time and a half in a test because we don't even have any tests, right? Mm-hmm. So, so how do you build various avenues of, of acquisition so, you know, you can read or you can watch a video or you can listen to a podcast, right? I mean, even though the, the whole, you know, different learning mode, somebody's only this, only that, you know, that's people are questioning that it's absolutely true that multiple pathways to acquisition give people who are better at listening and gaining knowledge of listening the, that pathway more readily, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, if I post my, my lecture slides automatically, somebody who has trouble writing that, things down quickly doesn't need to come to me after say please professor could right. i have your lecture slides right? right which some press will say well no you can't have that because that's right you know so the, the question of how do you set up this idea of designing curriculum in such a way that a you have multiple points of access b multiple ways for somebody to to choose how they can best demonstrate their knowledge so right. if i'm good at writing down in a test you can do that but if that's not your strength you can do something else right yeah so that's the place where I think I can illustrate for me to move into this, first of all, because I understand this idea of multiple different kinds of things being easier, just makes sense in my brain. But secondly, because it's part of what I do and part of what I can, because people have started seeing me over time as somebody who knows about pedagogy, right? Right. Who's an expert teacher. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a seal of approval from the mm-hmm. university, I'm part of this academy of single teachers. So my boss is a teacher if they say I am, right? So, <laughs> Hey, you know, if, if you think but you've I'm worked that, on it, that's been an interest and you've really made an effort on it. That's I, I have. I have. I mean, it's, it's something I've cared a lot about. I've put a lot of effort into it and, and I've been fortunate it's been recognized. But now I can leverage it, right. hopefully, into saying, OK, if you really think that it's important 
to teach in ways that are inclusive. Yeah. Then do it this way. And that then, you know, it's the same principle that, well, if you have a ramp, then people with strollers. can. I was just thinking that or a bicycle, like put the ramps in because everyone is going to use them. Right. So, I mean, the terminology that's in this idea. And again, the the acronym is UDL, Universal Design for Learning. And, you know, it's sort of like adding the word learning on universal design, which is from physical right spaces, right? It comes from architecture a while further back, which, again, was partly occasioned by disability issues. But then people have realized, wait a second, right, as you say, this is it's actually, it creates more opportunity. Now, the word universal is tricky because, of course, as one of my advocate friends says, a design is always for a thing. And right. so no design is ever going to be available to everybody for all things. Sure. And so it has to be, a, it's a dynamic concept of continuous adjustment, openness to to creating pathways right. uh, and understanding that whatever pathways you create are going to be incomplete. And if somebody comes to you and says, hey, I love the pathways, but I, but they're still, I still need this because the pathways aren't enough for me. You say, thank you, thank goodness. And maybe you find a way next time around to right. build that in some ways it is more work up front or it requires a new way of thinking mm-hmm. about what's important. But again, I have the benefit of not having a lot of courses to teach because I'm only meeting with one class. I can be more, more versatile in tweaking as I go along. So, you know, mid semester, I'll always send an anonymous survey out to the class saying, Hey, here's, you know, any thoughts about how the various assignments are configured. Can you think of any way to reconfigure any of the assignments to make them more valuable for you in terms of experience. And every time I get a couple of really good ideas and what I tend to do is I add, right? So instead of saying, oops, we're going to do this instead, I say, okay, the assignment is this, but if you want to do it this way, you can do it this way, right? Or if you want, instead of writing three short responses, you can write one long response. You know, I had this semester was the first time a student coming and telling me, yeah, I know you're, you're asking us to do these short responses, but it's hard for me to write short responses. And so I told them, okay, it's a useful thing to learn, but I'll honor the fact that I'll give you the option of writing a longer response as long as the longer response connects right. the issue of the response. Because it's the goal, not about failing you. It's about you demonstrating what you know. That's it. That's you know? it. And, and, and so, so again, you know, it's one of these, these things where, well, well, duh, right? <laughs> but so when I encountered this concept, I thought, well, duh. But of course, since I'd never encountered it quite that way, I'd never really incorporated it fully that way. So it's a chance for me to both learn from and then bring this concept into my particular field of music history. Because That's cool. Um, because this concept, again, it's prim- prim- primarily applied K through 12, primarily applied to folks with diagnoses, uh, although again, it's, it's turned out to be useful to other kids as well. But because higher education isn't covered under the same national laws, right, the IDEA law as K through 12 is, it's just when you graduate high school, you lose certain protections and you just retain the American with Disabilities Act protections as a disabled student. So oh. you don't have the higher education institution is not as obligated to customize your learning experience as K through 12 is. Yeah, I've seen that. I, and they do tend to dump it on the student, all management, which, uh, yeah, uh, two, yeah. two of my kids, two of my kids have learning disabilities and are like, this is exactly the piece that I need help with that you now are not helping me with. <laughs> right. And it can be that, you know, it's a chance for the student to learn how to advocate for themselves. So, okay. Yeah. But, but, you know, it's just sort of like, oh, good for you. You're a woman and you get to advocate for yourself now because we're discriminating against you. It's like, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to spend the extra, you know, emotional energy that I don't have trying to convince you that I'm a human being. Yeah. Yeah. Yay. So, so, I know. Right. Right. So I think for, for me, you know, figuring out how to balance that 
now moral imperative. Right? You see it, you can't unsee it. You got to do something about it, right? And it, it's personal for me, partly because of my family, but because my parents brought me up with this social justice thing, and you end up, you know, with with the sense that that injustice needs to be addressed, right? Yeah. Yeah. Damn it! Uh, <laughs> I wish, I wish walk away, world, Andrew. Walk away. <laughs> I wish. I wish I were a little more immoral because I might. Have, I might be anyway. So, um, so how do I redirect some of the limited bandwidth that I have in my in my? Well, brain, yes, and beautif- my, beautiful, beautiful transition. Right. What do you do for a right. creative outlet? What do you do to recharge? Yeah, see, that's a really good question. So, uh, recharge. What do you mean? Recharge. <laughs> I don't recharge. The words. <laughs> so it's interesting because, in a way, doing this kind of work recharges a certain aspect of what I need to be recharged. So when I know I'm I'm contributing to things getting better and when I can tell that students are benefiting, that is itself an emotional and sort of satisfaction recharge. I mean, I realize that I'm in a position to benefit in terms of, you know, feeling like I'm in a, the kind of work that is noble, right? Yeah. Or, or that makes a difference. So in a sense, oddly, there is an aspect of work writ large that is recharging for me in a sense of this is worthwhile, right? Nice. So for some people, work is work, and then there's the thing that matters, right? right? That, that matters in the world. And for me, there's an overlap, which makes it complicated because then it makes it complicated for me to back off of that, mm. right? What other recharge? Because, because there is also emotional investment. Yeah, I mean, it, it, some things don't recharge that way. So hiking, walking, traveling, I still love to go places. It's more complicated, as you know, with kids, right? Uh, and so right now, my kids are still the age where me going off for long periods of time can be difficult, but it does happen if I go off to a conference or something like that, that as part of that, it's a chance for sort of me to to be in my space and explore. And I still love exploring and seeing and visiting and, you know, sort of sightseeing in the broader mm-hmm. sense, walking and so forth. And sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, going for, for long walks in the general area. Uh, one of the things that I tripped on, again, some of a mistake is my stepson a year and a half ago expressed an interest in learning martial arts. And so I did some investigation and I found a Taekwondo studio mm. uh, near our place that, as it turns out, has been fantastic. I mean, I figured it was going to be good based on the reviews, but it's turned out to be really phenomenal. And so even as he, he's become, because teenager, he's become less interested in it, is basically dropping out of it. And, and it's not a battle that we want to fight, right? Uh-huh. Uh, but it's become... I'd done yoga for a long time. So I, I used to do a lot of yoga before when I was sort of living by myself. And there was a lot more sort of space in my day when my daughter was with her mom half of the time. Uh-huh. Um, I'd go and do a fair amount of yoga in yoga classes. But this Taekwondo has taken its place. Ah. So martial arts, uh, less in the sense, I mean, I'm, you know, how old man, 55. So I'm, I'm never going to have that washboard abs. And I don't particularly. <laughs> hey, aspirational. Aspirational, right? <laughs> but but what's good about it is it's about physical focus that yeah. takes one out of the of the here's what it needs to get done, yeah. right? So refocusing on on patterns on on sort of building certain kinds of physical routines yeah. that allow the focus to move to the body, yeah. uh, and and I found that very grounding because my brain tends to want to go a thousand different places. And so the discipline of saying no, right, the body yeah. now. Well, right? there's a mastery and a flow inherent in martial arts, I think, as well, that just lends itself. It's funny. I had a podcast guest who described it as, in fact, a creative act and made a very good a very good case for that, I thought. Oh, it is, isn't it? 
Never thought about it. Thought about it as like one of those things your kids do. <laughs> right. right, right. Well, and, and, and it is, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a process for, for me also a process of mastery of self. Right. I mean, I mean, that, that sounds very Bruce Lee, but it, it sort of is, is you hey. learn, if you learn your body, you learn how to bring it down, to bring your mind and your body down through particular kinds of patterns and you learn what your body can do. Right. And you can, and one thing that's been really interesting for me is sort of feeling like I can tell over medium spans of time that, oh, I didn't used to be able to do that, mm. right? My body moves this way now and I have this kind of precision and this kind of, maybe you can call it grace or even power at some level, which hard for me to imagine, right? But you know, certain kinds of bodily ability, yeah. right? Yeah. That is sort of in a chill way, really helpful to concretize focus. Yeah. And that is helpful. The only other thing I was going to ask you is, what would you tell your younger self? What, tell my younger self. I would tell him that my optimism is well justified. Oh, that's a good answer. I yes. love that. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrea, yeah. for coming today and chatting with me. I really appreciate the time. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and I appreciate the, the opportunity to kind of catch up and, and talk about stuff. And, and, and let's, I mean, even less formally, let's, let's make sure that we, we're still in touch because it's great, to, it's great to reconnect. Great. Thank you. You bet. I'd like to thank Andrew for taking the time to talk to me about his work, his commitment to learning, and his commitment to removing barriers for others to learn and to be heard. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9 to Thrive, and Facebook, at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening. <laughs>